2050. Der Future Podcast mit Markus Nettelbeck. Welcome to another episode of 2050, the Future Podcast. In this Futurecast, we will have a talk about the future of housing. My guests today are the American architects Melinda Humphrey-Becker and Peter Nettelbeck. Melinda, thanks for coming to the show. Hi, Marcus. I'm uh, Melinda Humphrey-Becker, a registered architect in Washington, D.C. Uh, I I went to the Architectural Association in London for school many years ago, and I also have a master's in architecture from Virginia Tech. I specialized in public architecture, uh, working for the Smithsonian Institution for over 25 years, and I ran multi-million dollar museum projects. Uh, I love the fact that they are designed for permanence, and they have uh, large budgets so that we could do new and innovative things. Uh, we also did a lot of uh, new construction and renovation. Uh, but during that, my tenure there, I was able to specialize in sustainability and made sure all of my projects had both uh, renewable energy components and also used sustainable materials. I, I received millions of dollars worth of grants from Department of Energy, mostly for solar energy on the projects, and use those to teach the Smithsonian visitors about renewable energy. Um, I also uh, became a DOE, Department of Energy, champion in 2005. Um, I taught at Virginia Tech for many years. They're, they have a branch in Alexandria, Virginia, and I was a thesis advisor and uh, worked in other area schools, um, helping students. Uh, now I'm specializing in housing and I've spent several months recently researching prefab architecture. Uh, that's, I, I went to Portland, Oregon, where it's really one of the hubs of prefab architecture and um, something called accessory dwelling unit, which are smaller houses under 900 square feet in people's backyards. It's one of the U.S.'s growing uh, alternative to um, housing, and it's the idea is to solve the housing crisis in America. That's, that's already quite interesting. Thank you for introducing yourself. Peter, who are you and what are you doing? Uh, my name is Peter Nettlebeck, and I am a licensed architect uh, in Washington, D.C., And uh, most of my, my projects, uh, I work on uh, residences, mainly in, the, um, mainly in D.C., but some in Virginia and Maryland and the inner suburbs. Um, so architecture is not my first career. I, uh, I worked doing a few other things. I started uh, working as a software consultant uh, and then worked in um, financial services. And then in 2008, I decided to go back to school to study architecture. And for me, that's been a, a really great life Uh, life change uh, to work in in architecture and actually create things and that's one of the things what that I love about architecture is that you get a chance to come up with an idea in your head and then you put your your hand to a pencil to paper and you actually are able to design things that actually get built and I think that's what I I absolutely love about this profession and uh, I love working in in um, 
in the residence in, in the residential field of architecture because it gives you a chance to work with the end user and get a chance to to really um, come up with some interesting interesting concepts and ideas. And every project is is kind of a one off project that it's unique to an individual homeowner. Um, and so that that's the, the kind of the side of things that I really love. All right, it's a, it's a really huge area. So uh, and uh, there are many things to talk about housing. Uh, but can you give us a short background of the history and the current situation of the urbanization and the housing in the US currently? Yeah, I mean, I think um, with urbanization, I think it's really interesting. Um, if you look at uh, like Washington DC, for instance, the, the population has, has increased since 2000. And I think, uh, we were, we were a kind of a steady decline in, in, uh, in population in DC, uh, since maybe like the sixties. And then in 2000, we kind of created a, there was a tipping point and we've now had drastic increase and in reurbanization since 2000. Um, and I think that's pretty consistent around most of the American cities, at least some, m most of the bigger American cities. I think New York um, has seen a lot of increase in housing um, and really most American cities have, have really had uh, an increase in the last, um, you know, last 20 years or so. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to kind of see what happens next with, uh, you know, I think that the popula the population increase has actually decreased. So people are still moving to um, to DC and moving to cities, but I think the 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 rate at which they're moving to the cities has has decreased. And I think it's really interesting to kind of see what the cycles uh, what the cycle is going to be and how it's going to how it's going to look in the future. Um, I think a lot of people are, are now with coronavirus, uh, people can work from anywhere. And I think that's going to, um, mm -hmm. I think that's going to help transform how people live and how people work and where people live. And I think that's going to be fascinating to kind of follow. So there are new concepts, uh, required. So people are not necessarily moving, uh, in towards the city. So we saw that in Europe that, uh, during the lockdowns, uh, The people tend to go outside to do, go more on uh, on on, on uh, the countryside where they in lockdowns can go out and uh, as you said uh, you can work from everywhere um, and uh, more um, they are more conscious uh, regarding sustainability and uh, having a green footprint. Um, this is um, getting more and more important for the for the people here. So, Melinda, you said uh, sustainability is uh, one of your uh, areas of interest. Uh, so, how mm -hmm. do you how do you see that? I can see that in the past 20 years, what was kind of a not necessarily an oddball idea, but certainly not mainstream, has definitely become mainstream. And a lot of clients, even for residential projects, are excited to make sure that um, the house has meets some energy requirements. I know the DC permitting office, our local jurisdiction having authority in terms of, in terms of building here, it requires a big energy calculation for mm -hmm. each one of our houses, both in terms of lighting and heating. So now, We require R49 for the roof, which is insulation of about 15 inches thick. We never had that before. 
And DC is sort of ahead of the game in terms of um, requiring, I think in the next four or five years, uh, net zero housing. And I think it's really interesting because we have this older housing stock of houses built, you know, in the hundred years ago, 120 years ago, which I know in Germany is not that old, but uh, you know, things have changed quite a bit in the last hundred years. And so like our house, uh, both of our, our, the house we currently live in has no insulation on the inside of the house. It's basically a a brick um, masonry wall and then it's plaster on the inside. Um, And so to rehab these houses, you're going to, you're talking about losing, you know, four or five inches on each side of the house and which is, you know, substantial. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see like if, if there's a way that we can get more with, with technology to get more, uh, like a higher R value to have more insulating properties within a smaller, um, a smaller cavity, which I think would, which is, which is really fascinating. I'm, I'm hoping that that's like kind of the direction that we're going. And it seems like, like it is, I mean, with the spray foam insulation, different insulation types, yep. you can actually get higher R values in a smaller space. Yeah, the materials are constantly changing, which is really kind of a pain for architects because we always have to be learning. But uh, we're required to learn. And so vapor barriers, rain screens, all this new technology is all to increase the um, insulation of of the building envelope, which is a good thing. Uh, So I think that sustainability is becoming mainstream. I think that the idea of co-housing and minimalist housing is growing as a thought, but certainly not mainstream yet. But people are thinking about different ways of living. Uh, Right now in D.C., uh, there's so much new housing stock, apartment buildings that are 13 stories high, have roughly somewhere between three and 400 units per building per block. Um, And there's probably a hundred new buildings just in the past five years, that scale, Mm -hmm. but they're smaller than what people are used to. So, um, you know, I wonder if we're going to also see, you know, that I think that the cost of housing and people's um, ability to be able to work from home is is going to cause some people to move out of the city because they just want the space and and the hope of, of having more housing will help drive down the cost I think yeah. that's the, the cost of housing in in America is is just dramatically increased and I, I assume that's probably similar in Germany I'm not not exactly sure um, but I think a lot of a lot of the questions that we have and that we're thinking about are how to create you know, cheaper or less expensive houses that can satisfy and, and allow more people to live in a more dense environment. Yeah, we see that we say uh, the same uh, development in Germany, so that uh, houses uh, are getting more and more expensive, and uh, this is uh, creating the need to um, 
yeah, to be more efficient with the with the space we have. And uh, of course, we don't want to destroy too much of the of the forest and and the green areas uh, towards houses. And uh, this will uh, move. Uh, yeah, this will have a change in architects as well. Um, there are some very interesting concepts uh, where um, in uh, big cities uh, they think about uh, refurbishments and uh, to kind of multi-use buildings uh, where maybe office buildings were in the past, but currently they do something uh, where it's possible to have uh, yeah offices, but not only offices, uh, but also um, multi-family options, multi-generational houses. Bringing some uh, green areas into the uh, into the uh, cities to make it more attractive for people uh, living inside the cities. Um, so uh, there are a lot of movements there, and the materials uh, you mentioned that uh, in a little bit uh, before is also very important. Uh, so to um, isolate uh, the houses, this is one thing to save energy. And on the other hand, also to be more sustainable with the existing uh, materials. Uh, so currently, if you build a house, you have the bricks and uh, you have maybe some wood and all the other materials. And most of the materials for your new house are new in a way. And uh, so what, what uh, yeah, there are discussions to, to um, reuse existing materials from older buildings and bring it into newer buildings. Have you heard about uh, this uh, movements uh, as well yes yes i i know that um in dc there's a company or a organization called community forklifts so we donate cabinets we're not using from uh renovation projects and materials and when i redid an old house in anacostia uh we got all the doors a lot of the windows and all the radiators from uh from this community forklift where developers going in and changing things, you know, donated these products and then we reused them to rebuild uh, a historic house. I think also. So let, let me interject. We actually were, uh, I was at community forklift last week and found a bunch of old doors that matched our existing doors for yeah. our, our current renovation project, which yeah. is really fun. Yeah. And I think as, as architects, it's really fun to, to work with these older materials and kind of mix them in to um, to newer newer materials as well and kind of figure out kind of how to how to make them work together I think it's kind of a really interesting challenge I think it, it goes a step further so that uh, maybe the the concrete from the old buildings will be refurbished in a way and can be reused for new buildings something like that not only the doors which are maybe ready True. which are very nice yeah. and old uh, also the material which is simply used to build uh, the old house is yeah re refurbished and will be used for a new one right and i know when i was working on um the american art and portrait gallery for smithsonian we built uh, with Norman Foster the roof over the courtyard and uh, the insulation in that was all ground up jeans, you know, oh, that really? you, yeah. So, so insulation uh, in this country anyway, you know, more progressive architects are using mineral wool, ground up denim, uh, all kinds of materials that we could, you know, shove in the walls that actually, you know, insulation is really just, however dense it is, is going to hold in more air. Mm -hmm. um, but so I think that there's constantly ways that we can look at reuse of materials. The other thing I was going to say is, 
you know, I'm a climate reality leader, which is um, somebody who's been trained by Al Gore, our previous vice president, almost president a long time ago. Um, <laughs> he now trains people to become leaders and give lectures in this country. So I'm a member of our D.C. group of reality. And we've been working with the D.C. permit office about creating standards that are really very forward for this country in terms of requiring net zero energy so that when you build a house that's 5,000 square feet, well, you got to be able to show that you can heat it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I, can you imagine, you know, that happening with these office buildings? I mean, I don't know if there's going to be a, a, cre a credit trading uh, where you, you know, the, the, the housing stock or, or, big solar farms outside get funded by these buildings that use the energy. I mean, I think you're going to see trading energy credits. Uh, it's, it's getting more and more mandatory to have these solar panels on the roofs of uh, commercial buildings. Yes, so exactly. You don't have and I think the question I have is that, so right now to, to be net zero, it's or to be have some sort of lead certification, it's a, It's it's an elective procedure, right? It's not it's not mandatory. Correct. It's so so it has to be something that somebody wants to invest in. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, like right now, it, it doesn't seem like it. It's not from an economic economic standpoint that it, there's a very it's a very expensive to do this, and so a lot of people are not are choosing not to do it. Um, so I think. It, I think kind of begs the question, how do you create change, right? Well, I think also in this city, you can hire or sign up with an energy provider, solar energy provider, yeah. who will basically lease your roof to put panels on. So you're not paying for it. Yeah, You're getting a credit in your electric bill every month for being able to have them use your roof as a power plant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a lot of ways, you know, some people buy their own panels and then they save the direct costs. I remember 20 years ago with some uh, solar energy experts going and, and lobbying the electric providers, Dominion and Pepco, our yeah. local ones, and, yeah. and requiring that they buy back energy at the same rate they sell it to us. That took a lot of legal fighting for years. Mm. Now they are all required to, and that's why we have net metering. Mm -hmm. But um, so these things take a while. It's not like we've all been asleep at the wheel in terms of climate change. I think just making change happen takes a while. So um, I could see a lot of, uh, I've had a lot of discussions with people about where we're going. So I, I like your questions about 2050. Uh, I don't know if you are ready to talk about that yet. But... Definitely, yes. <laughs> okay, great. So, you know, they're, they're, we make a steel now. It's still in research and development phase, but a steel that requires half the energy to make than the current products. Hmm. Um, there's a concrete that uses hemp instead of limestone. So it eventually, the idea is that it will be uh, an emission soak instead of requiring energy to make it and put it up, which is why I don't really like using concrete now. It's one of the least sustainable materials you can use. But if it's made with hemp and other materials, it becomes much more 
uh, sustainable. And then in the, I was just reading some of this, you know, COP26 information that's coming out and what they're working on now is a concrete that will absolutely absorb CO2. Oh, interesting. That's amazing. Yeah. So in 2050, I think all of our materials are going to be up for grabs. And, and really, energy is going to be the lead. I, I think it's um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how we adapt to technology. And in kind of doing a little bit of, of prep work for, the, for this podcast, um, I came across a stat that kind of astounded me that um, double-pane glass uh, was invented in 1865, and it took, you know, over 100 years for that to become kind of the, the standard. Um, I think that in the future, as technology, I mean, with the increase in technology, we're, things, things have moved a lot faster. And I think the hope is that things will continue to move faster as we get these new technologies. Um, they'll be adapted quicker into, um, into practice. Um, so, you know, things like, you know, double pane glass taking, you know, 150 years to, to now become, you know, standard to switch over to, um, like we now have the ability to get to a, an R10 glass, uh, window unit that, um, but, but the, the, what's holding that holding us back right now is the cost of it. Um, and I think most people just aren't willing to, to pay the additional costs to do that right now. Um, but that's because of our energy costs. Our energy in this country is subsidized by the government. Yeah. So I think it, it's $57 trillion a year is the oil subsidy oh, from our U.S. government. And so if we can change that equation and people are paying what they pay in Germany – all of a sudden, energy—you know—you're going to so, have. So we actually, if we thermal, actually feel, if we feel it, then, then from an economic standpoint, yes. it's going to change. The, it's just a calculus. Yeah. Yes, this, this will happen quite quick then. So. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, we have <laughs> talked. A, we have talked a lot about the sustainability and uh, isolation and energy saving, which is, uh, of course, one of the main topics. Uh, currently, we have this uh, climate change conference in Glasgow, and uh, we see that uh, this is a. Uh, this is of in, in increased interest and we need to uh, cope with that in a way. But let us talk about the, uh, the architecture of the new houses itself. So do you see a more uh, prefabricated units or modules in a way? Or we have spoke about uh, concrete. So we saw the first buildings or the first houses printed by a huge 3D printer. How do you see that in the future? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't understand how that uses less material just because you're printing it. It's a way to get the product somewhere. Well, I think it uses less labor, right? So if you oh, can actually, true. if you can make something, I, I think the idea for prefabrication is, is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea of making something in like a lower cost area, because basically houses now, you need all the different tradespeople to live within a, a drivable distance to work on a work on a job site, which means that they're commuting from you know ten, tends to be pretty far away, uh, especially in an expensive city like Washington or New York. Mm -hmm. um, but if you can actually build something offsite in a you know a smaller town or you know a hundred miles away from a big city, the cost can be a lot less because you can you don't need to pay the the DC wages. Um, and, and then also it just kind of speeds up the process too. If you have, if you can do things offsite, 
And right. And a big, a big element, I think, in terms of prefab is the is is waste. I mean, they can use, you know, design the building so that there's very little waste. Right now, typical construction project is 40 percent waste, which hurts my feelings. Oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I think if we could, you know, with prefab and I and I did a lot of research on this, these companies can build better and faster and, you know, with more precision, like completely right angles inside uh, a building, a warehouse, and there's no time lost for bad weather. Mm -hmm. The problem then is shipping. So that's one thing that you don't have an issue with if you're printing the architecture. I would think it's printing is limited to the size of, you know, whatever you can 3D print. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the the concerns with printing is you still need different tradespeople to come in and put in windows and put in plumbing mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it, you know that it's not to say that we're not going to have robots in the future that can do that for us and kind of. Uh, and and I think that's probably that probably will be the be a trend that. Um, printing. Well, printing, but as as well as uh, using more robotic technologies to kind of mm -hmm. you know install that probably could install plumbing and electrical and things like that. And to be more on just to get, get it more, um, automated. Yeah. So printing has the, uh, the upside of course, that uh, a machine is doing everything. So you can do it very precisely and, uh, you have the option to, uh, create very new designs, which were very uncommon before because, uh, bricks are, <laughs> have a kind of square <laughs> form. And yeah. uh, you can print, uh, yeah, curves and uh, some some really strange, uh, yeah, shapes of buildings. Then, hmm? yeah, um, I think you know, I think there is a lot of um, possibility with a hybrid situation. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think the I think the building materials are, are always going to be a constraint and are, are always going to help determine what the what the space looks like. Um, so even though, you know, there, there's still constraints with 3d printing using, um, using concrete or whatever it is, there, there are going to be some limiting factors. Um, and that's always going to kind of help determine what these things look like. Um, and then also just kind of the very basics of like of how loads kind of like you want your floors to be, you know, right angle for the, and level. And then if you have another another level beyond that, you want you also want that to be, um, you know, square. And so I, I think a lot of these these things are more design related than um, than what kind of actually gets built. Right. Um, so uh, as both of you are architects, so uh, so my opinion of architects, they have these big desks with. Uh, huge sheet of paper and very accurate doing everything there. Um, how do you see your job in 2050? So um, maybe assisted by uh, AI, maybe. And uh, so as a kind of buzzword, a digital twin uh, of a house you are uh, creating, is that uh, already a topic for you? I'm not familiar with the term digital twin, but I do think that we will continue to be uh, design advocates, even if, and I have heard, you know, AI will be used for design, not just 
the fact that everything's 3D animated, 3D rendered, and CAD drawings, and 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 which is happening right now, where you know contractors use these models that architects create and and make sure that there's not the uh, conflicts between a mechanical system or distribution system or electrical wiring or a beam. We used to, you know, we used to not be able to think the human bike just couldn't turn the corner that quickly. So we're getting rid of a lot of the conflicts that were inherent in building something 3D. And actually just drawing it in, in two dimensions, you kind of lose, you yeah. lose a, lot, a lot of that. So, so the construction is getting uh, more reliable in terms of less change orders, less errors. Uh, but the idea of AI designing is that they can come up with 15 iterative solutions before we could pick up a pen. Yeah, and uh, it, it, it can save a lot of time as well. So the digital... Saves a lot of time. Yeah, the digital... Saves a lot of time. But I can could, I could see architects being the advocate for the client because there's something human about just dwelling, about living, you know, in a philosophical standpoint. Like... I think also if we're if we're going to get smaller in our housing, it's also because of the way we're living. Like maybe we don't need a huge walk-in closet. Maybe we don't need to have you know store as much stuff as we used to because things get delivered daily. Or you just you know, I can see us living differently. And I think to the point of like AI kind of doing the the design work. I think that that. That even that system is is has to be designed by somebody, right? So, um, I think architects are are going to have to either create that system for AI or be able to manipulate it in, in some ways. Put and in think, the parameters. And I think the yes. the the thought is that we always want to do kind of advance, create, and, and kind of move forward from where we came. And I think that even like an old old AI system would have to be updated and constantly kind of move forward uh, yeah, it's to, learning it, it's learning from itself by the way so <laughs> it could be interesting yeah, if you yeah, if you yeah. want to consider more uh, data from the environment so if it's not maybe not only to have this digital twin of the building you are uh, you're planning to build uh, in the in the virtual world it's also combining it uh, with the environment to see okay what is the impact of having exactly this building in this shape at this uh, at, at, at this location that could be interesting as well, especially if you're designing a new um, uh, shape or a new uh, layout of the of of this area in the city. That could be interesting as well to 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 have a kind of simulation up front and have everything be determined by kind of from an energy standpoint more so than yeah energy uh, energy if it's. And, and rain or something like that, where's, where's the water going through and uh, something like that. So which is which normally takes a lot of uh, calculation power, maybe. This can, can be done by uh, AI, maybe. Yeah, no, that could be, that could be very interesting. So <laughs> have you heard about the rotative house? <laughs> No. So, so that that? Uh, that was a concept uh, where the walls are turning. So that means uh, if you're in this kind of rotating house, uh, in one moment you have a table there, and then it rotates ninety degrees, and uh, the table turns into a big screen on the wall. <laughs> oh, I love that! I love that. <laughs> so I the, have that a little bit 
in my house where my dining table is a pool table. So when it's a dining table, it has big wooden leaves and they actually fit into a sleeve in the fireplace so that I can lift up the table and it becomes a pool table. So I love when things do two or three things and you can live in a small house, but it lives like a big house. And yeah, things just kind of transform into one thing can be something else. And I think we, we did a lot of that in the, uh, in the solar decathlon house. Exactly. The solar decathlon house, Virginia tech won a couple of years ago. What happens is the wall is on a track hung from above. So you can have a living room, a smaller den, a bedroom and a couple bathrooms, but then you can move all of these, the bedroom wall and the living room wall collapse and make it a one huge space. So they yeah. are on tracks and they move back. And for the house that, that uh, I worked on, the actual, the bedroom, the bed was actually uh, in the wall. So it was kind of like a Murphy bed, but yeah. basically you, you press a button and the, the bed will kind of descend um, through the, or down the wall and kind of rotate and then kind of come out out the base so it was completely mm -hmm. hidden and so you basically had no idea that it was behind the wall um but things like that i think are just fascinating and and the way to reuse space i think is yes is amazing yes exactly i think that's gonna become commonplace you know thomas jefferson had the first bedroom that he thought it was a waste of space so his bed was on a pulley and he raised it right up to the ceiling oh, so right. he could use the space so that was <laughs> 200 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he was the visioneer already. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, we see that uh, all these all these things and uh, having multiple uh, uses for, for the space and uh, can help us saving uh, space in the uh, in the future and uh, being uh, more sustainable with the uh, with the buildings and the houses. And uh, so I think the challenge will be uh, accepting that uh, the houses uh, are providing or maybe making it easy to accept for the people to, um, uh, to live maybe in smaller spaces, but without losing the comfort, because it's very clever to, 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 do, to live in these uh, well-designed uh, smaller places where uh, things have multiple uh, purposes. Huh? Right. And I think that there's a lot being done with lighting as well. I remember going to the Milan Furniture Fair a few years ago and Ingo Marr, who's a famous lighting designer, was developing a wallpaper that had LEDs in it. Oh, interesting. And I just, I know I have a projector here and it's nice to just put the projector on the wall and have, you know, blue light in the room mm -hmm. <laughs> with not, not showing anything. So I, there's so many ways to continue um, innovating the products we have. There's certain things that aren't going to change that are just consistent with being a human on the planet. And I also, you know, like, like light and space and air, we need those. We need fresh and, and you know, good things that are good for our body, biorhythms. But I do think that we're going to get into some urban farming, not only on the roof, which we're seeing a lot of, but also the walls you know, could have glass on two sides and have, you know, hydroponic gardening just in the house. Mm -hmm. So then you open up the wall, you want to contain the humidity, but people can grow their food as part of the housing. And you're constantly getting fresh food. Yeah. Yep. And it doesn't have to be 
everything you need, but you know, it's uh, it's a way to add to the, you know, the the, the uh, farming needs. Mm -hmm. The more we can do in our house, uh, the less we need to go outside, drive with a car, and this is sustainable as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do, I do want to get. I know we talked a little bit about co-housing, but I think it's growing as an idea. There's a, a co-housing uh, is a big deal in Scandinavia. It's very new in the U.S. and it's not mainstream. But there's a typical um, apartment complex in Tacoma Park here in D.C. or just outside D.C. And it looks like any other apartment building. The units are not huge, but there is a a big uh, community building that has a large kitchen, a large living room, and a children's playroom full of all the toys that you need. Um, and people who live there, they pay below market rate when they own, they buy their unit, but then they're required to work six hours a month doing the community farming. But then they get they get part of the vegetables that are grown on the property. And most people say six hours a month is nothing. It's, you know, you take out the trash a couple times and you do some community gardening and you maybe clean the kitchen. Uh, they also have, I think, four community dinners a year. And that's it. Hold on, maybe clean the kitchen, Melinda. <laughs> <laughs> that's that more, more work then. <laughs> yeah, But I like that idea. I like that, you know, what we have learned during the pandemic is that community matters. So warehousing yourself somewhere where you never see anybody is not really a healthy solution. Mm. So the more we can work together on things that we share, I think that's going to become, it's going to become more mainstream as an option, I think. That, that's, a, that's a good word. Community matters. I like that one uh, very much. Yeah, yeah. So do you have some uh, or a specific message for our listeners? I think I, I, I'm, I'm enthralled with the possibilities of the future. There's so much going on in terms of innovation and, uh, for materials. What's not going to change is who we are as people. But I do think that the more we work together globally, you know, we have a global challenge in climate change. And I think that we have, you know, the Internet, which is our first global um, language, the more we can share ideas and share materials and, and, uh, and solve some of these problems together. So I'm very hopeful for the future. Yeah, I, I think alongside that, I think there's a lot of optimism. And I think I'm optimistic about the future. I think we have the tools uh, to both become more sustainable and to live in um, to live a good life that uses less, less energy. Um, and I, I think, uh, I, yeah, I think the future is positive. So very, very good uh, closing words. Melinda, Peter, thank you very much for being in the show today. My name is Marcus Nettelbeck. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy and curious.